but I don't work for you. (laughs) Only what mindfulness contemplates can wisdom understand. Only what mindfulness contemplates can wisdom understand. This comes from a commentary on the Sutta Nipata. And I hope by the end of the next few minutes it's a little bit clearer you have to contemplate something you have to be mindful of something before you can really understand it you have to give it great care and attention in order to understand it Uh, we left off last time uh, with of the factors of enlightenment. The first factor, mindfulness. And just a few um, odds and ends to finish that up and then we'll move into investigation, which is another quality of a very awake mind, a mind that can be alert, also can investigate, can explore, can inquire, can look carefully at, can learn. When we left off with mindfulness, we were pointing out things like its mirror-like quality, that it's preconceptual, that its only goal is the seeing itself, the mindfulness itself, that it's unbiased, that it doesn't add to or subtract from what it's attending to, that it's participatory, it's involved in what it knows intimately. And when we bring that to the breath, as we've been doing for a few days now, uh, it means can we come face to face with a given breath and experience it just as it is, the breath just as it is, not the word B-R-E-A-T-H or an image or ideas about breathing. And as some of you have pointed out in the interviews, you've been doing your own, what would be considered a kind of investigation. Uh, You've noticed that your ability to be mindful of the breath sometimes gets mixed in with images of the breath or notions about how the breath should be. It should be deep. It should be fine, and so forth. And the function of mindfulness uh, doesn't include that other. It doesn't include um, the images and the notions or ideas about what breathing is. It's just, and we can't use language at this point, it's just this. I have to, though, just this in-breath exactly the way it feels. As it becomes more and more sensitive, even notions like breath break down. You know, it's just what it is. We don't know. Language starts to reveal some of its inadequacy. Finally, we don't know what anything is. Not really. We can explain it and use it, but what is it? And that applies to the breathing. 
So it's that kind of a direct uh, encounter with the breath. If you recall, another uh, aspect of mindfulness was its non-superficiality in the context of uh, when we're attending to breathing. It means little by little we start to develop a very detailed sense of what a breath is. We begin to notice the different qualities that breath can have, the different flavors that breath comes in. And a few times there were suggestions while we were meditating for you to look into your breathing. If you recall, you were asked to, can you discern its length? Is it a deep breath or a shallow breath? Is it fine or coarse? Is it pleasant? unpleasant or just neutral? What does the breath feel like? Does it flow smoothly and freely? Does it enter and exit freely? Or does it feel choked, constricted, fighting its way in and out? And so we begin to get to know the universe of of breath. It's a whole world of subtlety as we begin to see it. Here, mindfulness is beginning to shade into investigation already. In fact, what, what investigation in the, in the sense in which we're mainly going to be using it is, is it, it grows naturally out of mindfulness. When attention is sustained carefully, remember this attention is not thinking about something. It's just being an immediate, intimate, direct contact. And when that is more enduring, rather than just a second here or two seconds there, but has a more of a steady, continuous flow, uh, whatever it is that we're attending to begins to reveal its nature to us. The investigation is not so much digging with a pick and axe or anything like that. It's, a, it's being totally receptive. And so then that which we're contemplating, that which we're mindful of, that which mindfulness is contemplating, begins to reveal itself, to tell its story, to tell us what it is, what it's, what it's like. A very uh, important, uh, I think, very important aspect, if you recall, we mentioned the different ways in the commentaries which suggest uh, different ways in which this quality of mindfulness can be developed, strengthened, helped, aided. And if you recall, it suggested to pay attention to daily life the ordinariness of daily life, the small movements of the body, bending and stretching and reaching and touching, opening doors and closing doors and making beds and unmaking beds and chewing on food and all these very small details that make up our day. So that is another way in which mindfulness becomes strengthened. It's not limited to the meditation hall at all. You can be mindful anywhere at any time as long as you're alive. I mean, if you're not, if your mind is is functioning. Take the precepts which Narayan mentioned to you the first evening. Five precepts. In a certain sense, there's only one precept. And that precept is mindfulness. 
Now, if you include investigation, which we're starting to move into, uh, investigation is so uh, much a uh, compatriot of mindfulness that it becomes hard to separate them, but they do have somewhat different, slightly different shadings of, of function. In, the function of investigation is to shed light on things, to throw light on things. For example, if we were to, let's say you're a traveler and you are lost and very, very cold and hungry and you pull up to this building and the doors open, you walk in, but there are no lights anywhere and you start trying to turn lights on, but you can't find switches or the lights don't seem to go on. You kind of stumble through the various rooms and maybe we're all sitting here, and, you know, and I don't know who set the tone for the lights here, but, you know, mystical very dark in the cave, also sleep-inducing. But anyway, supposing you, that person would walk into the hall at night and it's totally dark. They would start tripping over people, knocking people down, uh, falling themselves, kick, bumping into cushions, and who knows what. The, the function of investigation is to throw light. So if you could put this, turn the switch and if the light came on, Suddenly, you could see where everything was. You could see where people were, where cushions and chairs were, and so forth. And so, with that light, you would see the nature of this room. And as a result, of course, e living would be a lot easier because you'd be living uh, in an appropriate way. You'd be living in, in relationship to what's actually here. Okay, the precepts, the five precepts, uh, they're really, it's really, sometimes uh, mindfulness is used in conjunction with investigation. It's sometimes called uh, satipanya, which means uh, mindfulness with discernment, or it can be sometimes wise attention. So it's attentiveness, it's the mindfulness that we've been talking about and we've been practicing, but there's also a keen interest, keen interest in that which we're mindful of. Now, the interest here is not so much intellectual, and we'll get into that in a moment. Take any of the precepts. The, the spirit of the precepts, at least in Buddha Dharma, is not so much a commandment that comes down from above and that tells you to obey it, to be a good boy and a good girl. Or, in other words, if you do it out of that motive, it isn't, probably won't work too well because we all, many of us, did start out in life that way. We were given precepts that way, commandments and so forth. Or perhaps we take it on because we admire someone, perhaps a teacher or maybe the Buddha. And we, so we take the five precepts and we get all teary-eyed when we take it. We think we're doing something really incredibly wonderful. Okay. In, in Dharma teaching, in the teachings of the Buddha, understanding is always given such high value. Uh, another word for investigation is insight, insight meditation society. So without understanding, anything you do would, would not be as valuable, would not be as helpful, would not be as skillful. Understanding is tremendously important. In the, in the Buddhist teaching, and understanding comes from mindfulness. So that uh, my understanding 
of the precepts is that there's something that we voluntarily take on. No one should make you take the precepts. That would be ridiculous. You voluntarily take it on and it has intelligence in it. Here's where investigation comes in with mindfulness. If you have never seen fire and you stick your hand into fire and you get burned and you then examine what happened to you, that's investigation, mindfulness and investigation. You start paying attention. What is this? What happened just now? Maybe you stick your hand in again and then you get burned again and you look at your hand and you see what that, the effect of that cause. And then you learn. Most of us learn. We don't do that anymore. We, understand, we have a healthy respect for fire. The precepts are like that. The, the precepts actually become quite exciting, quite alive, not kind of moralistic or puritanical or any of that dry stuff, ethical. These are good words, but they've gotten tarnished a bit. Actually, our particular time period desperately needs the precepts. You just have to tune on the six o'clock news anywhere. And so almost every day, there's some incredible suffering that's caused by people just not caring about the precepts until they get exposed. And they care, but they care in a certain way. This is different. This is uh, understanding why it's not wise to hurt anyone, to kill someone. Why it's not wise to lie. It's not to be necessarily a good boy or a good girl. It's that lying doesn't work. Stealing doesn't work. Killing doesn't work. Sexual misconduct doesn't work. Getting a temporary pleasure from intoxicants doesn't work. So it's a bit like fire. So that mindfulness, coupled with this interest, this keen interest, begins to teach you about why the precepts are necessary to help us live a happy life. And that includes the people who are in our life. Now, if you take precepts and the precepts keep becoming strengthened out of understanding from the way you live, you keep noticing it in yourself and also in others, the relationship to the precepts changes. It it almost has infinite growth. The possibility of uh, understanding a precept and then the following it comes from a very different energy. It's not doing it because of habit or conditioning or because a priest or someone told you to do it or out of fear. That's blind. You don't know why you're afraid of it or to do it. But it comes out of careful examination of your own lived life and seeing that it's unwise to do this. Okay, now, how can mindfulness help us, I think it's pretty clear, by paying attention. And how about mindfulness of the breath? Because what I'm attempting to do is to, as much as possible, bring out the relationship between the factors of enlightenment and conscious breathing. Let me give you just one example, and then I hope by extension you'll be able to figure out how you can do it in your own life. Let's just take any one of them, uh, speech, right speech. That doesn't apply to you here so much. It hasn't, but it's at some point soon. You have to have faith in this. You will, you will start speaking again. 
everyone, it just happens. When you, when you leave here, you won't forget how to do it. Okay. And as probably we all know, if we just draw upon our accumulated experience, we know that uh, when we flap these lips and sounds come out, there's incredible potency there. We are capable of hurting people very badly. We are capable of being hurt very badly by uh, the way in which we are either harsh or what we say is not true. It's divisive, etc. Okay, supposing you're in a particular interaction and you've begun the process of practicing, of paying attention to when you do this, you get that. When you put your hand in fire, you get burned. Now, that's easy with fire, but when it comes to social life, many things are decked out as wonderful and very enchanting, and they say, Come and do me, I'm wonderful. And then we do it and we get burned. And to say, well, but it keeps then and says, no, I'm still wonderful. Okay, I'll do it again. And again, and again, and again. We study history so as to not repeat our mistakes? I don't see that. Or maybe it's because we have a new generation that seems to have to learn the same lesson over and over again in a deep way. So let's say you're already involved in the process. You do value uh, you have a healthy respect for the, for the power of speech. You know that it has the power to enhance life when it's loving, sensitive, uh, relevant. You know that it has the, the power to uh, damage life dramatically. And Now, the precepts wouldn't exist if we didn't have tendencies to lie, to say harsh things, and to be divisive. If we were just saints, there would be no need for the precepts. We'd all just be glowing in the dark and be no problems. <laughs> the reason the precepts exist is because we do have the tendency to lie, be divisive, and so forth. That's why it's a practice. So let's say you're in a situation and suddenly you, you hear a lie or a half-truth or... something divisive, setting one person off against another. It's, starting, it's coming up, it's in the mind, and as you know, step number one, it appears in the mind, and you don't have very much time. You've got about a second or two, maybe not even. Something's got to happen, or else it's too late and it's out there. Here's where the breath can be very helpful. We get into the notion of restraint. Restraint is essential in terms of understanding the precepts and avoiding all kinds of destructive behavior. Restraint is not suppression or repression, but rather it's something that's done um, wisely and with love. Your actions, are, certain actions are restrained because you know that they will bring suffering either to you or to someone else or both. So restraint, which is another word that doesn't have very good press, at least didn't, hasn't for a while, is like uh, not allowing a young child to run out on the highway. You wouldn't uh, feel guilty. Oh, I'm, I'm such a terrible parent. I, I don't let my child do whatever they want to do. That is something you don't want to let your child do. You hold your child and you use whatever it takes. You don't let a, a very young child run out onto a highway. You do it because you love the child. That's why you restrain it. The child doesn't know enough. It doesn't know what's good for it yet. And as we're beginning to know what's good for us, 
but still the, the conditioning, the karma is so powerful. And so sometimes we're about to say something that is unskillful, it's off. And as I say, probably you all know this, you don't have a long time. And sometimes, at least when I've worked with Anapanasati with the breath in terms of enhancing the ability to live the precepts, it, you just hang on to the breath for dear life. And what you do is, instead of saying it, that dirty, rotten, SO, whatever it is, you just don't say it. Instead, breathing in, breathing out. <laughs> breathing in, breathing out. It gives you something to hold on to. It's like, a, a, it's a, sometimes very necessary. Because without it, it just slips right out and then we're rolling and the other person comes back to you, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and we're all blind without any teeth. (laughs) How can mindfulness of breathing help us in other ways, and we've gone over some of this throughout the retreat. Take um, eating. If you can stay in touch with your breathing, as I, I know some of you have, while you're eating, it can help in a few ways. One, the breath being in the background can kind of slow your eating down or steady it or help you be aware of the fact that you're eating. Because the conscious breathing does, when you get into it, cut down on unnecessary thinking, which the mind does a lot of, where we become distracted. We don't even know what we're tasting. So just having that breath kind of in, out, in, out, kind of along with us as we eat, can help us stay clear and so that we can really taste what we're eating. So that the mindfulness is being developed not only on the food, but also on staying in touch with the breathing, which helps nourish the mindfulness in order to take in the physical nourishment. Some of us have, have a long-term history of just going to the trough, you know, just as soon as food is put there. We, you know, we just gobble it right up. And in a, on a retreat like this, you have a rare opportunity to, uh, you know, if you did certain things that you're doing here, they would put you away if you do it outside. Here, you're able to eat much more slowly. But sometimes it's hard to do that. Let's say you start, uh, this is one, one way to do it, just take, let's say, a particular spoonful of food, and when you begin to chew, put your utensil down. If you hold it in your hand, you know it's, you're not even finished and it's already trying to get what you already have in your mouth. <laughs> it wants more of what you already have. I mean, it's, you can really get to learn about greed through food. It's for most of us. So if that's a hard one, what you can do is you chew, finish, and then at the end of when you finish, just be with a breath or two. At first, for some of us, I include myself, I very much was like that, uh, the slowing down like that, you could probably have a nervous breakdown. It's very difficult. If you've been going fast all your life and suddenly you eat and you chew it and you enjoy it and then suddenly, no, don't take that next bite, but just feel a breath, maybe one breath, two breaths. Okay, now. You can feel sometimes tension in the body develop because the body just wants to go into action. 
But that's learning. Here's where investigation comes in. You begin to see how conditioned we are. How the pattern of eating is out of our hands. It's a long-term life's training and it just happens. We're like a machine. And you can see greed at work. Not to condemn it, but just to see it's See what it is. See what comes out of it. The mindfulness of breath can help in other ways in regard to eating. Sometimes, and more and more this has been happening with me, uh, not a lot yet, but from time to time, you're eating something and if you've been following the breath a lot and you're in touch with the breathing, suddenly the breath will change quite dramatically. And I've seen that it is a very sensitive indicator that what I'm eating is not agreeing with me. It's not something I should eat. It's like the breath registers it very quickly. In many ways, it's more, it knows it before we know it, in quotes, whoever we are. are. That's a bigger question. I don't, you know, that investigation has to take up. Who am I? So it can help in that way. And mindfulness in general, paying attention to eating, paying attention to all the small things, your job, if you're about to mop the floor, if that's the yogi job that you've been given here, and you just hate mopping the floor. You were made to do it as a teenager, you always hate it, you always will hate it. And so what do you get when you come here? Mopping the floor. (laughs) Wonderful. Buddha just tailor-made, perfect. You can pause and be be with a few breaths. And as you do that, uh, enter fully into, let's say, the mopping of the floor. I think, uh, to finish up, at least for this evening, in regard to the use of mindfulness in the ordinary things of life, and by ordinary here, it's not disparaging in any way at all. It's just, our life is just, these are things we do over and over, routine things. We, we need to do them to, to maintain life. Especially for those of you who are new to this practice, sometimes what, you can, what can be conveyed or what you take away is that mindfulness of daily life is a kind of a, a nice concentration exercise. Yes, while you're vacuuming, become one with vacuuming, and then when you're eating, just totally eat. And there's a whole richness that's left out of it. Put more positively, if you can see the, uh, the richness of what, it, what we're really saying when, when we say, be mindful wherever you are with, with objects, with people, with food, uh, whatever activity you're involved in, this is all stuff out of the, the meditation hall or formal walking. It's what makes up most of our day, usually. What is really being said, and any of you who've practiced in really good monasteries, you know you can feel it. And if it isn't, if you don't feel it, it's probably not such a good monastery where they need to do something about it. Is it's, uh, it's the respect for what you're doing. Um, if you have a split, and we often develop a split, between what we do in the meditation hall, in other words, the formal practice, sitting like a Buddha, and walking like a Buddha, that's the real thing. And then you hear someone like myself, say, yeah, be mindful in all postures, Uh, bring mindfulness into the most humble activity, going to the toilet, whatever you do. That is the instructions. Make the mindfulness, fill up your day with mindfulness. Fill up your, your, your day with the practice, with now. 
we hear it and it's impressive, it sounds sensible, intelligent, useful. But if you don't get it at a deeper level, there's not going to be a whole lot of motivation to do it and you'll find that you forget it a lot. If you get to do it, because it seems like just drill or exercise, like maybe playing the scales in music or practicing certain dance steps over and over and over again. It isn't that. It is doing it over and over again. We do have to get into the spirit of repetition. There's no escape from that. Our life is made up of lots of repetition. Essentially, what it has to do with is respect for life, for our own life to begin with. For the, because whatever we encounter is our life in a given moment. And so these instructions are really meant to have that kind of attitude, to bring the practice into everything that we do. That includes relationship. When you go home, relationship can be a practice. If you're married, if you have a a companion, what happens between you can be invaluable in terms of, of vipassana practice. But the only way that will happen is if you have got to understand the value of it. So if you're motivated to bring what you already know from learning in retreats like this, into every situation. But we, don't, we enter life with strong prejudices, strong preferences. And let's say many of us have been wounded in life. For all I know, all of us in this room have been wounded, and that's what has brought us to the Dharma. And so we kind of crawl up to IMS, and we come in here on a Friday night and say, yeah, I'm ready to practice, you know, <laughs> crawl away from Wall Street or uh, Brattle Street or some street, And we come in here and then someone's telling us that the very thing that we just escaped, the combat zone, that that's practice too. Well, thank you very much. I'm not interested in being mindful while I uh, drive a a big truck through New York City or while I do all those things that drove me here. Four children who all want different things and two of them are teenagers. And so there's a reticence. What we want to do is just get into the nice sitting and walking. It's so sweet and quiet and all these nice vegetarian people who are gentle. (laughs) Nobody wants war here. But you know, pretty soon we're going to be back out again. And the world is primarily non-meditators. I don't know if you've discovered that. So unless we learn to live in a world of non-meditators, it's hopeless. Because what will happen is we'll create a kind of schizophrenia where the only thing that counts is coming to IMS or some other meditation center and we'll devote our life when the retreat's over and we wear it like a combat ribbon. You know, I did the three-month retreat of 1982, 83, 84, 85, 86. And then nine months of the year spent scheming as to how to raise money to get back to the next three-month retreat. In the meantime, what happened to those other nine months? Whose life was that? Someone else's? And so it's, it's actually not correct practice, in my opinion. I don't think it's my opinion, frankly. Uh, I hope it's, it comes in a higher authority than that, mainly your intelligence. <clears throat> if the practice doesn't help us to live in life as it is for us and makes us bigger misfits than we were before we came to the practice, I don't see the point. I think we should just give you your money back and let's just all go home. (laughs) And so it's imperative that we learn how to stay awake 
in a wide variety of situations, including the situations that we don't like, including relationship, which all too often becomes a battlefield, or work, work situation, where that also can become competitive in a battlefield. The emphasis in Dharma is on understanding. So that mindfulness plus investigation, investigation is just understanding, a real wish to understand. That has to be brought into everything that we're doing. So that wherever you are is a perfect place to practice. It couldn't be better. You have to supposed to clean out the toilet? Great. Couldn't be better. Toilet's a very, very important place. You know, this respect, by the way, I first learned it. I'm, I'm not saying I've mastered it by any means. But I first learned it, oh, okay, I can take care of two things at once now. I got a note, someone asking me, um, why do I bow to all of you in this direction? Why don't I bow to the Buddha? Because uh, it seems in other retreats, the bowing is only in the direction of the Buddha. And I guess in Theravadan retreats. Uh, a couple of ways. I guess the glib way would be to say, well, I see you as a Buddha too and I'm bowing to the Buddha. You know, that's, It's true, finally. Uh, but the, the reason I, I do bow to you, if I aimed in this direction, I mean, I'm happy to bow to the Buddha too, is what I learned in uh, one very funky monastery in Japan. They bow to everything, anything that moves. They just bow to it. <laughs> yeah. And even if it doesn't move, even if it doesn't move, uh, they bow to their cushion, they bow to their cushion, and one day I saw a monk bow to the toilet. Okay, I'm serious. I'm serious. Okay. So I asked him, I said, why are you bowing to the toilet? Okay. And he conveyed to me the fact that you know, in very Buddhist terms, everything is interrelated and um, interdependent, coexistent. Uh, and here's the, the key point. I'm going to add to it. This is not exactly what he said, but let's just put it in our present situation. What he was trying to say is that for something to really be effective, like a monastery, there are many elements that go into an effective retreat. Okay. Certain get featured, like the teachers are emphasized, as if nothing else is going on. Okay, now, here's my point. Supposing Narayan and I, uh, we left for like two or three days. And we just left, and we put a note with a schedule and said, just please sit. Some of you would get pretty angry and maybe leave. Some of you, maybe the more advanced ones, would think this is a really a teaching, and there's something important about it, and you just do your practice, even no interviews, no Dharma talks. You'd assume there's some really good reason. The point is, you could get by without us, right? You could keep practicing if we, supposing we left and we never came back. Okay. But what if there was no toilet paper? <laughs> I mean, no toilet paper. For one day, two days. So who's more important, toilet paper or <laughs> So what, what the monk was trying to say is that a successful retreat. Okay. Yeah. There are many elements, cooks and cleaning, everything. So many factors go into. If you just think about it, it's staggering that enabled you to come here. 
arrangements for someone to watch the children, working extra hard to save a little bit of money, getting a lift from someone, it's, it goes on and on. So all of these things, when it happens, they all come together. Conditions come together in a very beautiful way, and a good retreat happens, and we all benefit. And then we tend to feature something and point out, that's it. Well, what they were doing in that monastery, and it's really the, it's a religious attitude, is that everything is sacred. So perhaps I picked an extreme example, but I was trying to make a point. Now, if you understand that, then can you see how it would be a lot easier to be mindful in daily life? You won't view it as just some kind of drill that teacher assigned to you. Yeah, I'm vacuuming, okay, being mindful, being mindful. It's not that at all. It's that it's your life in that moment. And how many times do you vacuum? How many times do you make your bed? How many times do you get dressed and undressed and so forth? If we don't wake up to the fact that that's our life, a good part of our life is being lived mechanically and asleep. That's not our practice. Okay. Um, Let's begin to move into investigation. I think you've already gotten some of the spirit of it, but um, I'm just wondering. How do you feel? I feel certain things are important to say. Please go on the walk. You'll be okay. What? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go a bit over so that uh, into the use the walking time because I wanted to cover a few things. Uh, in preparation for when the instructions change tomorrow. Investigation, the job of investigation is to shed light on things so that we can see the nature of that which the mindfulness is directed at. So we can begin to uh, to see it. Now, investigation has many levels, and some of you have already begun to ask questions about it. Uh, investigation is, we've all done lots of it in our life. There, anyone who's had any schooling, we've all tried to think things through, how to uh, inquire, puzzle things out, or if you've been in therapy, you've uh, been encouraged to try to understand why you do something, and so forth. So, we know a lot already about what investigation is. Intellectual investigation has its place. Uh, now, we're the, 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 the factor of enlightenment is called dhamma vichar. So that means investigation of dhamma or dharma in Sanskrit. Some of you are more familiar with that. That means the investigation of phenomena, the mind-body process, and also the lawfulness that regulates that mind-body process. And that's the heart of insight meditation. So that we've been working a lot on calmness, on developing mindfulness, become more and more familiar with the breath, more and more familiar with the body, more and more familiar with the different moods that we get into, more and more familiar with the different mind states that come and go. The mind perhaps becoming a little bit more steady, more calm. So that we're now getting ready to... Uh, take that whatever degree of calm and tomorrow the first sitting after breakfast there'll be uh, new new instructions for the med- for meditation uh, can we now begin to look at the full range of what's happening to us not just the breath but whatever turns up whatever 
the mind reveals, whatever the body reveals, can we, first of all, now bring mindfulness to that, to whatever is there that comes up from the mind or the body. And uh, more and more as we learn how to do that, as we become more comfortable with the wide variety of events that make up our consciousness, make up our experience, can we also begin to look into these happenings and begin to discern what is going on. Now, investigation, in one, in one level, is uh, seeing the way things are. For example, just to um, take the breathing. Just to, when you look carefully at the breathing, you, you can begin to see that the breath sometimes is, has certain qualities and sometimes not, as is true of the body. You begin, let's say this fear comes up in the mind. Step number one is we have to become somewhat more familiar with fear. Just start approaching it. This is fear and start edging our way towards it a little bit at a time. Uh, remembering that mindfulness is coming face to face with the object. Only now the object is no longer the breath, but it's fear, loneliness, anger. The objects are, beginning, are now a bit more highly charged and in some cases very highly charged. And they uh, make up our, a lot of our life. So now what the challenge is going to become is to take the calm and the concentration to whatever degree we've developed it from being with one relatively simple object, in, out, in, out, in, out, and now transfer that ability that we've been mainly developing with the breath and what we've been doing throughout the day. And can we now direct it at whatever's happening in the mind and body? And that's one very important aspect or, or use of investigation just to get to know what it means to be you a lot of this is idiosyncratic it's getting to know you as you this is very important uh, when we sit starting tomorrow the just the instructions are going to be very simple we're going to still be with the breath but it just basically just be yourself just sit there and be with whatever is there whatever is happening and so more and more, we're trying to learn how to be ourselves. But what is that? What is that? Now, I mean it now in an ordinary sense. I'm not talking about uh, the ultimate meaning of who am I. I'm not talking about nirvana or anything of that sort. But just the way in which our mind and body functions, to begin to get to know that in the, in the most familiar way, to become as intimate with ourselves as we can be. And meditation can help us with that. Each person must do it for themselves. And as that starts to become more something that we're able to do, we begin to move and see and probe and investigate and learn at a level that's universal, that's the same for all of us. And people have to move at their own pace. When we're examining what's individual and unique for us, a lot of that is our, our personality, our life story as it surfaces time and time again, influencing us. In that sense, the content is different. Each person is different, one from the other. And as I'm using process here, uh, as the practice develops, more and more you begin to see that independent of what your story is, and independent of what my story is, uh, there's a level of lawfulness that is universal. That whatever it is that's arising, whether it's a breath, or whether it's a mood or a bodily state, it passes away. And then whatever replaces it 
that also comes and goes. And we begin to see that everything comes and goes. And this is the door into insight. We're now practicing vipassana, pure and simple, straightforward. And investigation here is uh, by, if we put mindfulness on anything, a mind state or a physical condition, the breath, whatever it is, and we contemplate it, then understanding begins to see that whatever it is that we're mindful of, that it changes. Now, perhaps everyone in this room already knows this. Life is impermanent. We all must die. You know, we're not stupid. We see what's going on. We hate the Russians. Now we love the Russians. We hated the Germans. Now we love the Germans. And we hated the Germans. Now we love the Germans. You know, I don't know. American Israel, that's changing. Everything's keeps We know that everything's changing. But do we? The Buddha described one of the characteristics of an arhant, or let's say a, a, a fully developed, someone who's really taken this practice to great fulfillment, as someone who knows that everything that arises passes away. Now you might say, well, you mean all, all, that, mod- all that meditation, years in caves and forests and doing all this walking and sitting for hours on end and your back hurts? It hurt for them too, you know. And all he found out is that everything that arises passes away. I could have told him that. It's a deeper level of knowing. I'm, I'm going to tell a story on Narayan. I hope she doesn't get angry at me. <laughs> but she has no choice. Because I think you'll see what I'm getting at. Narayan's father did not particularly approve of her doing all... She did lots and does long her own retreats, said, you know, for three months and this, that. And he, he never liked it when she was away. Uh, he didn't want her to go away so long and be on it, particularly on retreats. If she was away, it didn't seem to bother him as much as if she was away on a retreat because he didn't have access. You know, it just seemed, he didn't know what this is. So one day he asked, well, why do you go on these retreats? What do you, what do, you do there? And she said, well, I go because I'm trying to, uh, to understand myself, to learn about myself and understand myself. And he went, oh, for God's sakes, why don't you tell me? I could tell you anything you want to know about yourself. <laughs> is it Okay. <laughs> And in a way, he's right. He's known her since she was an infant. He knows, sure, I know Narayan. And we all know that everything that arises passes away, but it's a different kind of knowing that's needed. It's got to go very, very deep so that you are the knowing, so that the, the, the law of impermanence is so deeply internalized that you, uh, your living is in touch with a law that keeps happening whether we know it or not, whether we live by it or not. The law is not going to be repealed. This law just keeps rolling on, on and on and on. And so part of the job of mindfulness and investigation, what we'll be doing much more of, is beginning to see that everything that arises passes away. Now, in any one instance of it may not be news. Oh yeah, here comes an in-breath and now it's gone. Or the breath is very long, nice and deep, and then it's shallow again. Or I just love meditation, it's just great being here, I hate it. You know, it's just, but now we begin to see it. We begin to see that that's the way life is. Life is this flow of just change, like an ocean of impermanence and change. And it's a door into all kinds of things. So this is the level of investigation that is uh, 
primarily vipassana, we also begin to see into our suffering, begin to understand the nature of suffering. When you're suffering at any given moment, if you really look into it with uh, a curious a mind, a mind that wants to learn, you may begin to see why you're suffering. Now, in terms of this particular teaching, one of the things that you can see is that you're suffering because you're grasping after something. Or there's a, a, a linkage between suffering and craving or attachment. You've all seen this many, many times. It came up in interview a number of times today. Let's say, um, let's see if I can think of one. The breath becomes calm and you're enjoying it. And then suddenly you have some thought, as one person did, which was a negative thought, and suddenly uh, the breath becomes rough again and it becomes very difficult to pay attention. And then the person starts trying to get that calm breath back and starts to suffer. Okay, it's not massive suffering, it's small suffering. But nonetheless, you, you can, if you investigate, if, you start, if investigation starts becoming second nature for you, like a keen interest in your life, really, you begin to see, oh, look at that. I had nice, calm breathing, and then simply when it left, and then I wanted it back, and here I am hurting. And I'm hurting not because the calm breathing left, which it must, but because it didn't behave in the way in which I wanted to. It just left when it wanted to. And you begin to see that you're suffering. And that you, if you pay attention, you'll see throughout the day there are many ways in which we create lots of suffering for ourselves. That's unnecessary. So the, studying the law of change on us, ourselves is absolutely essential. We've got to... If we study the law of impermanence, let's say we see ancient Rome is gone, ancient Greece is gone, and so forth, that's very interesting and that can help us learn some things. But unless we learn about ourselves, ancient Larry is gone, you know, or whoever you are. We've got to begin to see that from moment to moment. Things are arising and passing away. Uh, the only hope of living truly harmonious life must at least begin with this because we then will be in step with the way things are. If we are living as if everything is permanent, as if everything should be exactly the way we want it to be, there's no uncertainty in life. Uh, it's going to be a bumpy ride because the law of impermanence doesn't care whether we learn about it or not, and it never takes a break. Have you noticed? 24 hours a day, life keeps insisting on being just the way it wants to be. And then when you feel you've got it, it's something else and something else. Well, part of the art of meditative living is becoming, it's, it's a dance, it's becoming really fluid with mindfulness, with awareness. And step number one in the practice tomorrow, when we'll uh, the instructions will be very, very simple. It's just to sit right in the middle of your experience, whatever that experience is, while breathing, because in Anapanasati, you're always in touch with the breathing. But now, while you're sitting in the middle of your experience, breathing in and breathing out, the whole art here is to allow the experience to be just what it is. The beginnings is to come to be yourself just as you are in that moment. Just this. We've been practicing it on the breathing. We've allowing, we've been, you've heard the, the, the instructions and commentary on the instructions. 
how to let the breath be the way it is. Don't try to control it and make it into anything else. If the breath is shallow, let it be shallow. Surrender to the breathing. Allow it to be just what it is. Well, now, excuse me, the ante is up a bit. Can you allow the mind to be just the way it is? Can you allow the heart to be just the way it is? The body and so forth. And so, as we surrender to ourselves as we are, it's beginnings of, of accurate self-knowledge. You see, only that which mindfulness contemplates can wisdom understand. It isn't an intellectual thing. It means mindfulness lands directly on something. And the wisdom we're talking about, there are many levels of wisdom. There's certainly wisdom that comes from books. Useful. Buddhist books and other kinds of books. There's wisdom that comes from questioning, from inquiry, from dialogue. And that's a valuable part of our training as well. Uh, that's an important part of learning. Learning, let's say, the Buddhist teaching, reflecting on the Buddhist teaching, talking it over with Dharma friends, with teachers. This is all useful. But finally, it's all in the direction of seeing if the verbal teachings that we've gotten from books and from teachers uh, is true. And the way to find that out is we have to test it with our own life. So we begin with ourselves, right here, right now. And so the kind of learning here is not intellectual. It's directly perceiving something that is happening in us, in experience, with a mindfulness that increasingly is able to be with the object, to stay with it in ways that have been uh, hinted at. And more and more to be able to go into the object and begin to see its nature. We begin to see that it arises and passes away and it lacks self. I won't go into what that is, but certainly we will as the retreat unfolds. Uh, let me just finish here. To convey the spirit of what we'll be getting into tomorrow, which is a, a real uh, to relax, to allow yourself to just be yourself. Perhaps our, our mothers told her that. You know, just, will you just be yourself for God's sake? Stop. That's what we're going to learn. How can we, when we sit, can we just, just sit? That's what just sitting means. You're, you're just there. You don't have any strategies or plans except to experience how it is to be you in that moment. Carefully. Um, I heard a, uh, it was a, a film that wasn't, I don't even remember the film. It, was, it wasn't very good. It was on TV. And there was a minor part of the film was suddenly there was some, a, a scene in some church and uh, people are singing a hymn. And I don't remember most of it, but two lines knocked me out, if I can remember them. It was, the first one was, um, Sweet Jesus, take me as I am. Sweet Jesus, take me as I am. The second line, because that's the only way that I can come to you. Okay, that's, it struck me, wow, this is just a beautiful statement of our practice, uh, except we're playing all the parts. Can we have a few moments of stillness?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.